Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here. And, you know, this is part of the message of Project Cashmere, of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think for all those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Hello, Project Kazimierz listener. This is Richard Lucas. Today we're bringing you an unusual episode in which I am being interviewed rather than the interviewer, together with Sam Cook. Łukasz Moszelski, who I met at an entrepreneurship event in Krakow a few years ago, contacted me to tell me that he now had a podcast of his own called The Wall Street Lab. The Wall Street Lab is primarily focused at professional investors, but in this case they wanted to talk to an an angel investor. In a fairly wide-ranging interview, I discovered what it's like to be interviewed rather than be the interviewer, and I hope that it's of interest to our listeners. If you like the interview, please do leave a favourable review on iTunes and jump over to thewallstreetlab.com, sign up for their podcast and see what you think of their shows, not just this one, but the others. We hope you enjoy the show. Richard is an angel investor who is currently involved with close to 20 different companies across a variety of industries. He has made many investments into the world-class startups over the years, including deals with startups backed by the likes of Y Combinator. For example, Richard was an early investor in the company Estimode, which won the 2013 TechCrunch Disrupt in the hardware category. Part of the reason why Richard is such a fascinating person to talk to is that he is involved in a variety of projects outside of his main work. He is the founder of Camp Entrepreneurs, an alumni network for the graduates of Cambridge University and others focusing on entrepreneurship. He is also the license holder of TEDx Kazimierz, which is a TED independently organized events in Krakow, and many more projects that he will talk about on this podcast. During the interview, we go all over the place, but we talk about how to approach an angel investor, how Richard selects his investments, and how he keeps track of the startups that he's involved with across different industries. Just one last thing before we jump into the interview. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. Good ratings really helps us in growing the show. And now, without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Richard Lucas. So, hello, Richard. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast to talk to us today. We could start off with the first question, which usually comes up. If you are at a at a party or if someone from the extended cat family comes along who you've never met, how do you explain to them what is it exactly that you do? Hmm. I always find this quite an entertaining question because what I do is a bit unusual and confusing confusing for people and I, I say to people that I do a lot of different things which for many people might be 10 20 30 percent of a full-time job but as I do six or seven of them that means that I'm I'm uh, busy I, I say that I don't really have a work-life balance I have an activity inactivity balance and I don't like being inactive and from, from my point of view even having a conversation with them is part of my activity that I'm not very good at going on holiday I prefer to be I say that I prefer to be inside the buildings rather than looking at them from the outside so for example last year when I went to the TED summit in Banff in Canada I organized a meetup with the TEDx Calgary people the second day I was in Calgary so I was like arriving in town I like I like to do things whether they're for-profit or non-profit is a an interesting and important question but I'm not I, I, I make enough money with the things that make money to mean that I can afford to do the things that don't raise raise money that I also think are important but I, I like I very think much go by the attitude that 
creating value is important, but value isn't always monetary value. So, for example, in the TEDx, the TEDx conferences I host, uh, I do TEDx Kashmir's and monthly meetups. I say the key thing is that someone who shows up, they trusted us with their time. We have to. It's the same for these podcast listeners. They're trusting you with their time. They have to feel that it was a good decision to listen to the podcast. And if at the end of the podcast they think what a waste of time, you have failed, even if there's no money involved in the in the short run. Same with the events. I say I don't want just people to think it was a good way to spend my day. I'd like I'd like like them to say for my big TEDx events is a good way to spend their week, their month. That it might be the best the best day of their year and even their life because I'm ambitious, which is. <laughs> which is a high threshold, obviously. In terms of business, I say that I, over the years, I've I start companies and find other people to run them. It's been an evolutionary process where you know I was doing what is now called angel investing before I'd heard of the concept of angel investing. So I didn't sort of read a book and think this is this is what I should do, or see a podcast. The internet didn't exist when I started, or wasn't available in Poland. So, you know, I've got five or six companies that generate that I live off because they pay dividends. I've never done an exit, and that's not because I've never been offered money for my businesses, but it's never seemed sensible to take uh, money at three or four times earnings because three or four years later you've got the same amount of money if the company doesn't fail and you still own it. So why would you do an exit as well as <clears throat> as well as supporting the companies? And then I, I also... I'm not an organisation in the sense that I don't have a lawyer, an accountant, uh, a project finder who delivers, you know, potential projects into a process where, where they're analysed. So, but I'm very active in the startup community and pro pro entrepreneurship support community, not just here in Krakow, although this is where I live, Krakow. Krakow, for those of you who don't know, is a major city in the south of Poland. It used to be the capital and has quite a dynamic startup community, but also I, I, I do events in London. I did something in Canada. I'll be doing something in New York in April. And I, I run the an organisation called CAM Entrepreneurs for Entrepreneurial Alumni of Cambridge University. Um, that's new, but it's uh, a way to do something which is very much missing, which is to get going the idea that entrepreneurship is something that can be beneficial to people, whether they're entrepreneurs or not in the sense that a policeman or a policewoman can be entrepreneurial if they see a problem connected with a local school, make a, organise a meeting with the local youth centre or school director and discuss what to do about it. That's something that's probably not in his job description or her job description, but still they're seeing a problem and acting to solve it. Day to day, I, in my diary, I have some I have some regular scheduled meetings with some of the smaller startups where, you know, literally it's a, call, it's a Skype call once a week and then if we're, it's a key... And then what I help with is sort of what you might call non-scalable, unusual stuff. It, for smaller businesses, hiring is really important. That it's quite difficult to get experienced, talented people to consider working for a for a startup compared to the things that their parents will understand, like PricewaterhouseCoopers or Goldman Sachs or or Google. It's really tough to get to get talented people to join your team so sometimes having someone like me around <laughs> I, I arrogantly think might help but it might it might put them off and for some of the larger companies we have like monthly monthly board meetings where I and the other shareholders get together with the CEO then sometimes there are special projects you know there's a a, a medium-sized business where you know on Monday there's a guy who we've met a few times who used to be big in the world of commercial real estate and he's you know we were talking about a joint venture with the company he used to work for for some reason we don't know yet he's parted ways and we're having a meeting to discuss cooperation so that could be a joint venture it could be an executive hire it could be a new startup idea he's going to lead and we'll have a share in and I really don't know but the CEO knows that I'm quite creative in deal making and so I sort of get he asks me to come along and I'm happy to go in terms of um, so that's on the sort of what you might call supporting existing businesses. I, although I am, I do consider new investment projects. I'm not being that active at the moment because I, I, I nearly got into trouble a couple of years ago where I bought out one of the co-founders of one of my earliest ventures, uh, Unicard uh, Spukaktsina, which is like uh, is. Uh, 
people identification company and the company was in trouble um, for reasons that aren't appropriate to discuss, to discuss in this forum. It, we, I and some other shareholders thought it would be a good idea to do a deal. So we, we, we bought the guy out. I, I, I bought uh, his shares on, in three-stage payments. But after I did that, one of the other businesses I'm involved in got into a bit of trouble and I needed to lend money to that company and we needed to lend more money to the company I'd bought out. So I had the, I had the purchase price and the credit support um, to a greater extent than I expected, which meant that although on paper I was I'm in quite a good situation, I, I was literally thinking, you know, if, if we don't come out of that trough, I'm in real trouble. So I, I decided I needed to build up my capital reserves a bit before doing larger, larger investments. So you mentioned that you typically hold the companies for the for the very long run which is what we see as a very untypical approach in the in the venture angel space from from our perspective i personally find it great because of the because of the cycle that we typically see in the vc where vcs come in for a few years try to take as much profit of the company and they have a deadline to sell the company. How do you look at this, that uh, you keep holding on to their portfolios and not liquidating your, your positions? Okay, well, I, and I, I think my personal story is important here, that when I started the, uh, the first businesses back in, the, the first serious businesses, I, know I was trading sweets in my school playground in the 1970s and getting into trouble with the school authorities because it wasn't allowed and... I had this idea of going into business, but you know, didn't do anything in my teens because I was in a school that was very unsupportive of entrepreneurship. And it wasn't just a school; the whole culture of Britain back then wasn't. Despite you know, if you were interested in business, you were a Thatcherite, and for teenagers, that was very uncool and bad. And you know, I was quite. I wouldn't say I had a particularly strong personality back then. I was very influenced by the environment I was in. So when I moved to Poland in 1990, I set up a business when I graduated from Cambridge University, which didn't work out. It didn't go bust. I just had a tiny revenue compared to what would make any sense to carry on doing it. So I just had to wind that up and came to Poland having worked for a consulting company for just over a year. I didn't enjoy the consulting and was teaching in a business school just after the end of communism. And I was, I was 24. There were about 40 students, average age 40, and there's a lot of stories connected with that. But one of my students came up to me after one of my third or fourth class and said, Do you, can you give us a bit more help? And he wanted some advice. And of course, as a helpful teacher, I was keen to do that. But within days, it was obvious they needed much more than would be normal. So in the end, I, I, I gave him some money. There was a deal literally on the back of an envelope with like initials and shareholdings in percent without any of the things that I'm sure all your listeners would regard as normal like terms termination, drag-along, tag-along, you know, uh, senior executive compensation, change of control. There was nothing, just an envelope with, with shareholdings, not even things like management salaries regulated, which, which I wouldn't do these days. But I didn't do that at the beginning with the concept of an exit in mind. And if you don't build a company with an exit in mind, then you don't really prepare for it. And I, I was lucky enough with hindsight not to speak I speak Polish well enough now to have passed the language test necessary for my Polish nationality application because as listeners would probably can hear I'm, I'm British and you know being being British isn't a very nice thing to be at the moment if you're an internationalist person who likes the idea of a country that's tolerant and welcoming to foreign influences and Britain Anglo-Saxon is German Viking if you think about it from a, a sort of cultural ethnic point of view so I don't think and, and I don't think being Anglo-Saxon is a particularly mono-ethnic concept and I was forced to manage the company through other people from the get-go because I didn't speak the local language back in the 1990s, which actually made it relatively easy for me to step out of managing the business while remaining a shareholder. I think very often as the person who founds and starts their own business and then exits it, they're not just exiting for financial reasons, they're exiting for personal reasons that they, they, they want to change their lifestyle and you get really, really sucked into an intense 
an intense way of living where the business is your life very often and you know maybe that's great for some people but it's not great for a lot of people because they didn't realize when they started that you know it's not just appearing in TechCrunch and being cool but you know firing people and you know having you know people trying to bribe you or really horrible things you know pornography on company computers and you know what do you do you know there's a whole lot of crap that rises up when you're running a business that you don't realize that means that people sometimes want to get out and I so I didn't exit I didn't have an exit in mind at the start then later on when the idea of selling the business came along all these lack of clarity among the other shareholders about what meant sense came in but we did have we did have one or two sort of quite large multinationals you know 10 billion dollar year multinationals come along and sniff around but the the offers they made weren't weren't particularly good a, a private equity company came in to another business I'm involved in and gave quite a decent valuation but the valuation was to put money into the business there would have been a partial exit but then in a then that would help us with our international acquisition strategy because um, what we also discover but then it's a, it's an iterative process and you know the great advantage for listeners now is that you can be 19 listen to this or even 10 15 and think oh well that's I won't make the same mistakes as Richard Lucas and congratulations I'm really jealous of you guys for being able to compress all that knowledge that you know, we we all got so many terrible offers from companies that wanted to buy us that we thought, well, if if that's normal, it's much better to be an acquirer than a. It's much better to buy than sell in this market. And you know, if you buy someone with an earnout, which is typical for a small company, if you get the deal structured right from the acquirer's point of view, you end up paying for the acquisition with the money made by the people you buy. So you know, you might be making a million dollars a year. Someone offers you four times earnings, um, so that's four million dollars, uh, and the deal is you've got to grow by 30% a year so that so that that four million goes up to you know sorry the million dollars you're going up goes up to two million so uh, you know at the end of the day you've paid very little for because you don't give all the money you give you know half now half later so it's two million now and two million later and you end up paying one million for the whole thing because three million of your four million acquisition price comes out of money of the people you've bought um i don't rip people off please if you're listening to this and think you know it's, it's good that everyone should everyone should win so i didn't exit not because it was a philosophical thing it's just never made sense the other insight i've had is that when you're in a business you get to many business opportunities as a result of being in that business that I, almost all my businesses are b2b businesses i've had very little success with selling to consumers i've hardly ever tried but when you're doing b2b if you're selling to breweries if you're working for them as a vendor and you think you think jesus christ those guys have got a huge problem with you know employee I don't know what it might be employee tracking they don't know where their people are or they're spending five minutes a day on this process that we could take to one second if I think of like you know estimate people tracking type you know where is x you know the answer if, if x costs you a quarter of a million dollars a year plus benefits you know every minute you don't have x is really important and x doesn't like filling in forms so automation of work processes you suddenly realize well if that that could be a separate business you know you, you're in the you're in the id cards business which i am and you suddenly think well that could be an app that could be a separate business so so not not exiting sometimes gives you access to a, and the great thing there, which I think is really important for people thinking about startups, is very few people who've not done it realize how hard it is to sell B2B with a startup. The you know, big companies are cautious for a reason. They're reason because they've got a lot to lose and you know, if you're if you're Walmart, you won't give your your time and attendance systems to a startup because, you know, if if it goes wrong you're probably breaking you're breaking all kinds of laws which you know it's going to be all over the media hey i went to walmart and i couldn't i couldn't go to the till because their because their employee check-in system had gone wrong you know it's it's a huge issue for a big company they have they're almost driven to deal with the the schlumbergers or the ibms and what we've got as a result of being in business for so many years is we've got fortune 500 companies as clients so we can test our startup ideas on our live customers because if you know the guy from you know PepsiCo well and you say well it's your product manager goes to him and has a conversation about their current needs and they say well you know we could do a pilot for you 
and you define the pilot with the guy who trusts you, no one's, then that information that it worked for PepsiCo is your startup capital. You can go to your, your VCs, your seed investors, and say, look, well, there's, you know, they, they always ask you about traction. And you say, well, our traction is that Pepsi wants to buy this when it's ready. Well, that's, that's completely amazing compared to any other startup because once you've got Pepsi, you can go to anyone and say, well, Pepsi's using it. And you don't have to say it's only Pepsi. <laughs> you, you've got Pepsi as a client. Um, so the exit wasn't a strategy. You know, if anyone, you know, if people listening uh, want to talk to me about investing in any of the businesses, the answer is let's talk. It's not that we've ruled out exit, but some of them is clearly the wrong time. Zalamo.com, we're just going international. That's a, a tool for professional photographers, which is growing very nicely in Poland, even though we haven't really cracked our sales, sales process. And you know, we're a market leader in Poland. We're just getting ready to go in English. But clearly we'll get a once we've cracked the sales process this, this is a this is a product which saves time and money Ta saves time makes money in large quantities for professional photographers so our target is only professional photographers typically who have more than 50 photo shoots a year but the more the better and you know once we've got that going in english Actually, I don't really want to sell shares. You know, why? Why would I? Why would I want to sell a successful business? You know, it's like doesn't. Will I find anything as good as that with the money I get? So, you know, it's it's always it's always uh, you know a question of making a judgment. But if with the found, you know, my situation may be different from the other founders because I'm I'm you know I'm not the CEO. So it's also a question of a discussion with the CEO about what they want. And you know, sometimes if a person says to me, you know, I want to build this company I never want to sell it you know I want to be someone significant in my marketplace I say I say to them well look if you think about it from an investor point of view unless you're going to have a really generous dividend policy and you know chuck out cash year after year that's not a very attractive thing for the investor so maybe maybe you want to think about your story because an angel investor isn't going to invest in a company that doesn't plan to do an exit ever unless you know they can say well look we can make a million dollars a year pay you a 15 percent dividend and you know you'll get one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year for the next 20 years and all i need is two hundred thousand bucks or that that's an incredibly attractive deal i would go for that so that's rather a long answer to your question but we cover quite a few different things within it so going back to your portfolio, you are currently involved with close to 20 companies that cover a variety of sectors. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking especially at the private equity and VC markets, we see more and more specialization. So companies or investors that would do only one certain kind of investment. How do you track the developments in different markets of the portfolio companies that you are involved with? I agree with the idea that there's a huge benefit to focusing on a sector, but that's a scale issue for me that, you know, I, I, I'm involved in the startup community. People come up to me with different ideas. One of the things that every investor, professionals included, will talk about is the the character of the people leading the company and like the, the you know, the sense of unusual manic desire to work like crazy and be successful is so important that trumps any kind of sectoral, sectoral specialization you know you know sort of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk I'm sure you've heard of so many of the listeners well if you listen to podcasts at all you may have heard of Gary Vaynerchuk always talks about the problem of privileged kids getting involved in startups you know mummy and daddy helped them along they sent them to a good school they paid them to get them through went to Yale went to Harvard They've never had a tough experience in their life, except that pressure of, you know, elite-style family upbringing. And, you know, suddenly you're trying to sell, you know, automate coffee cup, corporate coffee cup logo delivery, and you discover you can't do it, and you go along to your family Christmas, you've lost a quarter of a million dollars of your family's money. And it's, it's a... It's a huge pressure. So you need to have those people who are slightly driven who are, who are quite comfortable with that setback and will just work harder when they face it. In terms of keeping track of the, the market, though, I, you know, that's very much the, the CEO's uh, responsibility rather than mine. However, you know, I'm involved in a, I'm a media junkie. I, I'm online every day. I, I, I don't 
I, I like to look at UK news because I'm from the UK, but also writers I find very good and, and podcasts. The, the Economist is very much internationalist in its outlook, plus the fact my brother's a senior editor there at The Economist, so I have a sort of family loyalty. But So BBC, Financial Times, Economist, Reuters, Telegraph.co.uk, Guardian.co. I try to read from different perspectives, not, you know, although I'm socially very liberal and financially quite conservative and very anti-nationalist, uh, although I, I'm patriotic towards the countries I'm associated with, which are Poland and Britain. I want them to have good futures. That's not through nationalism. The, I was reading The Economist this morning. Yesterday there was something in The Economist about a new survey on lifetime learning. Uh, Notatek.pl is a is the leading student portal in Poland, and we've got three three lines of business, one of which is corporate training and education, so it's training employees. So I just sent a link to that article to the CEO saying, you know, take a look at this when you've read it. Maybe we should have a workshop with the staff there about it because I think it's um, there's lots of insights into business models. But, you know, to do what... I used to work for a consulting company. It was a joint venture with PA Consulting Group, which is quite a big, big consultancy. And I think that, you know, in my experience, and that was confirmed by some of my colleagues in the consulting company, that in a £100,000, and that was 25 years ago when £100,000 was a lot more money than it is now, in a £100,000 study, you'd only get one or two days that really matter. The rest of it is just flannel and sort of stuff that you can find out anyway without paying anyone to tell you. So the implication there is that, you know, the insights that really matter often ones that require a real specialist. And if the CEO of a company that's involved in peer-to-peer, you know, peer-to-peer lending isn't well up on what's going on in peer-to-peer lending, you're in trouble. I mean, you know, you, you want to, you know, and, you know, that, that can move on when we discuss how I screen, how I screen ideas. If someone comes to me, they've got a great idea to do with, you know, picking people up from airports and they, they think that they've got no competition. <laughs> it's, um, you know, just the thing. I'm still shaking my head. I'm thinking, does this guy, you know, does he really know anything? Has he tried to buy what he wants to sell? Has he done the basic, what I would call competitive intelligence, a sort of scan of the marketplace? And, you know, if they're a developer, a geek, and they can code, then then I'd still possibly... Have, and they've got some customers or some very strong validation, I'd possibly uh, agree to have a meeting where the girl of the meeting is that so you've got to find a co-founder who can take care of the commercial stuff because uh, uh, someone who can code and build products that people like or love is is an ideal co-founder for almost anyone <laughs> else listening, So provided they've got basic interpersonal skills. So in terms in terms of sort of keeping track of them, you know, it's not my job. I, if I see something that's relevant, I send it to the CEO. If I see an opportunity, and I think of the world, in terms of problems and solutions, so I, or I see something that's growing. I, I, again, there's a new trend towards using DC rather than AC current for international transmission of electricity. And I remember a friend of mine who had a, a very quite large scale battery company in the UK that failed. They, I think they got through 18 million pounds. So say 25, probably. So by the time you're listening, 18 million euros worth of capital. Um, he had told me years ago when I was visiting him that he thought DC would be better than AC for a lot of applications in the home. And I sent him a link to the article I'd heard about, I, I read or heard about it. And he just wrote back, but the big problem with DC in the home is that it kills people, you know, that it's dangerous. And, you know, so if someone listening can find a solution to the DC will kill you problem, that is extremely important. So, you know, you've got the problem defined and, you know, I've no idea what it is. Maybe there's no solution, but if you can see the problem and there will possibly be a trend towards DC rather than AC uh, distribution of electricity for fundamental technological reasons, but there's this huge side effect, uh, side effect this, the, the, that is more dangerous is, is important. So then you say, well, you know, the thing that really matters in this marketplace is what problems do people have who do X, Y, or Z? And if you can figure out, if you can define the problem, then you can think about the solution. And then, of course, it's, well, how would you make money out of it? Is there a technical solution? How would you make money out of it? Have you got the team and organisation to deliver? How much money do you need to make that happen? And, you know, what will I get in return if I help you? Type questions.
In terms of a typical process of angel investing, do you feel that is something like a typical process that you go through with each of your investments that you've made? Or do you feel that each investment was an individual process? I mean, I mean from the clouds level, looking down, there's definitely a process. And like, I think the first thing, and this is quite important when you've burned your fingers and made as many mistakes as I have, it's, um, it's ruling people out, it's finding ways to say no. So the first thing is you're looking for red flags. So it's, it's um, and you know, typically if I get a message via Facebook or LinkedIn is most common or sometimes people come up to me at events. The first thing I do is uh, there's an article I, I, I wrote, which I'd like you to share in the show notes if you have them called Tough Questions from an Investor on my blog. And I update it from time to time. But basically, it, and what I say to people, look, you know, potentially, because people always want to meet me, they, that I get these sort of, they've obviously written, read or seen a, read an article, seen a podcast, seen a slideshow about how to approach investors, and you get these rather strange messages that look rather crafted, talking about grabbing a coffee and, you know, they're using Americanisms that are not part of my vocab because they think it's going to help. And I always steer them to this article. I say, well, look, thanks for the approach. Take a look at this article. Um, try and answer the questions in it. And I say, because, you know, if I'm going to give you half an, half an hour or 40 minutes of my time, I don't want to waste that time finding out stuff that you could have easily sent me beforehand. And if, very often that, that that already rules people out. They say, no, I'm here. I'm far too busy. You know, I, I know I've, I'm not going to invest my time on someone who's too busy for me. You know, maybe there's a mismatch between investment opportunities and entrepreneurs here, which means that I'm more accessible than some because I think in but I think in sort of ultra, you know, probably in London or or Berlin or or San Francisco, there might be more people approaching people like me than I get. It's not like I get dozens every day. I'm not that visible. Um, but the first thing is to get people to give me a bit of basic information. If you go to Tim Jackson's fund in London, Lean Investments, they have a form. You know, he's, he's, he's done as a as a sort of slightly, a slightly, he's way more successful. He set up the British equivalent of eBay and sold it. And when it went public, it was at 400 million pounds. So he did he did very well. He has a process for his fund lean investments where you fill in a form, very short form. And it's basically the same idea. You're, you're trying to weed people out. Then, and then if I'm not sure, I encourage them to come to an event at which I'm, I'm a host because I do the open coffee cracker meeting every second, uh, second Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And again, if it's too early for someone to get up, that's a very good red flag. You know, if someone can't be bothered to get to somewhere for 8 a.m. in the morning, um, then... No, <laughs> it's like it's unless they can code and they've got good interpersonal. Yeah, again, all the things that rule someone out. If they can code, they have good interpersonal skills and they build products people love. I will be flexible because that's there's, that's such a rare, valuable skill set. It's it's like being a sort of a supermodel, an incredibly attractive guy who everyone wants to date. You know, there's a certain or and there's a certain sort of certain things that allow you to get away with a lot of other red flags. Although there are red flags even for the guys who can code and and uh, have good interpersonal skills and um, and uh, build products people love. Uh, so then then once I've got to the stage of you know meeting the person, they've done they've gone through those. Hoops, then I'm there's a personality match. I said, do I can I imagine? looking forward to meeting this person once a month or you know if, if I wasn't around and someone met that guy and they said they're in business with with me would my reputation be enhanced by the fact that basically I'm looking for people to make a better impression than I do you know it's just like it's not an it's not a no-go if they don't but I really definitely if someone's got really weird interpersonal skills they they're you know maybe maybe it's political like they're they're racists or you know they're making jokes about Jews or blacks or or they seem to be pro <laughs> politicians who I detest <laughs> without giving anything away about politics, although possibly you can infer from things I've said earlier, then that's going to be a red flag. Can they clearly communicate their business idea? And very often people will say, I want to show you my product. And then I say, look, please, I don't want to see your product. I want to hear about your customers or your users or your potential customers. Your potential users. And they start getting out their laptop. And I say, look, look, shut your laptop. Please don't show me your product. I'm not interested in your product yet. I want to hear about the use cases, what problems it solves. And if people don't get that, they say, but I want to show you my product. Then I think, well, fuck you. Sorry, I 
told you I didn't want to and you're ignoring me, you're not listening. If you can't listen, you won't be a good business person. You know, it's like I told you very clearly and I say, look, it's nothing personal. I always say this, don't show me your product. That's not the first step. Tell me about the users, the potential users and the problems it solves. And then, you know, if they say, well, this is a product for postmen, you know, postmen keep on being bitten by dogs. They spray this on their legs and they spray my product on their legs and the dogs run away. I, I, say, I say, oh, really, that's interesting. Say, and, and then they say, and what's more, Pochtapolska, Bundespost, Royal Mail, and, and the USPS have run pilots and they, and they absolutely love it. Then I'm extremely interested because... You know, or, or I went to see the head of you know personal safety at the the Polish post office. Then I start having a sense of you know this person is serious. They they take their idea seriously enough because because there is this sort of scenario now, particularly in the startup world, where it's so cool and fashionable. People think that it can be an easier life than getting a regular job with the with Goldman Sachs or PricewaterhouseCoopers or McKinsey, which is a tough thing to. You know, those are tough jobs to get. Obviously, most people can't even get them. But you know, the, if there's this sort of sense that you know, instead of earning whatever it is, I don't know how much you get. Do you know how much you get paid if you join Goldman Sachs or McKinsey in in, Berlin, in Germany these days? I'm not sure exactly about these companies, but an entry analyst position at a typical investment bank can expect to earn somewhere between 50 and 70,000 euros without a bonus. I believe that's something that the latest statistics say. 50 to 70. Uh, okay, so, so um, I'm even out of date. In, so then that means that, you know, people think if I can have a startup and have that standard of living I would prefer it I'm not surprised because if you have a huge equity kicker and you can get that sort of salary you know who wouldn't go for that that it's cooler to it's cooler to have a startup so you know but then people they're they're looking for the slightly possibly they're looking for the slightly less informed angel who thinks they're going to have the next Facebook and they're ready to take a wild punt on you know this very slick 24 year old who could be in McKinsey and they're super intelligent and you know speak three languages including Chinese and (laughs) they've got all the right they've got all the right things but you know that person isn't necessarily the the person who's got the the business drive and determination they've clearly got determination if they've educated themselves to such a high level but it's yeah what is the business do I understand their business model can they clearly communicate it do I and it's like do I understand how they're going to make money and you know the business model is important there are a lot of um, people who have rather limited experience for very good reasons they've not done that before who haven't understood you know, the the problems of a sustainable business model, then it's like, what have they got that will be hard to replicate or their edge? And, you know, is there something in their setup which means that, you know, it's reasonable to think that once they start, suppose they start coming up with a, a solution for gas stations that make it slightly less unpleasant to, to fill in your, fill your car with, with diesel or petrol, you know, what is going to stop the incumbents you know, Gil Barco and Wayne Dress and all these people who, who put gas pumps, just like you know, the incumbent competitive response is really important. They say, well, we've got this patent. If the guy says to me, that's a, or the girl says to me, that's a great question, you know, that's our biggest threat. So what we've done is we've patented this. We've got X Wayne Dress and Gil Barco and other gas pump people on our advisory board. And, you know, our preferred exit is a trade sale to one of those three companies where we want to get them in a competitive situation where they all want us. And, you know, then, then at least there's a... Uh-huh. So they've thought about it. They've understood because, you know, you, you don't want to be going head-to-head with an easy-to-replicate uh, retail model with Walmart. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's obvious that Walmart or Tesco or, or Lidl, uh, you know... The, You've got extremely powerful, rich, well-organized companies with fantastic relationships with with both their client base quite often and their vendors, and it's going to be really hard. So, so the sustainability, and then the, the the fourth bit of the jigsaw is: do do they have like the the knowledge and experience of putting a team together to deliver on this? That you, know, you can have the best business model and the idea, great technology, but if someone's never hired anyone or managed anyone and they haven't yet got their team together then you know that's that's a lot it's a lot harder than you think even when you've got money to to put a team together to deliver 
you know, and uh, to build an organization which can actually be effective. And, you know, I give them really simple examples from way back 25 years ago when I had my SKK, my first business, barcode systems company, you know, selling barcode scanners and printers to industrial companies and utilities. You know, what you need to do to have a man in a suit with a product who's trained in, with a, maybe a laptop, not back then, who can make a presentation in a city 250 miles away as well as you would do it if you were there. You know, that requires an awful lot of organization, which is not rocket science none of it's difficult but it's but it is difficult to to actually do that any kind of scale because you know that guy needs to be insured you know is he going to be booking his own hotels how do you decide what his expenses policy is you know if you've got millions of dollars from some angel who doesn't care then then possibly you learn by doing but i would rather see someone who's you know whether they've organized student society trips to from one city to another and they say yeah well i mean the key thing is you just have a you have a, a list of you're allowed to stay in ibis ibis and formula but nothing more expensive and you know whatever it is and he said you just have a sense you know, this person's organized something because if you put too much money in the pocket pocket of someone who's inexperienced it will get wasted and i hate waste um and, you know i also i also went on a on a course a short course at the judge business school in cambridge and a guy called David Cleveley, who's a very successful British entrepreneur, did a he made hundreds of millions. He said he, after he'd done his first exit and he had lots of money and he was negotiating a deal with a company that had a really interesting software product and you know everything was great and he he did the deal, shook hands and he he decided to go and visit them. A couple of weeks later, he drove into the car park and he saw seven brand new Mercedes in their car park. And he thought to himself, you fucking idiots. And then he thought, I'm a fucking idiot. And, you know, there's that sort of... Sometimes it's such basic things go wrong. So you're looking for someone who has sort of thought about these things, who's not going to be learning by doing, if in this it's extremely early stage, which is where sometimes I come in and, you know, if I'm giving someone 20,000 zloty or paying their bills for a few months while they while they go through getting to that process, maybe I'm ready to live with a higher level of lack of experience for much less for a much lower valuation and much less less money from me the final thing is sort of ethic i mentioned you know their politics but there's this sort of ethical ethical framework that you know i'm i'm 50 years old and i don't want to be in business with people who i might be ashamed of in the future and whether it's to do with you know basic you know not doing business with them. I mean, I've, I've been to a meeting where a man opened opened a briefcase and there was thirty thousand dollars in cash and a gun. You know, I, that, only once in my life. But you know, that's uh, or you know, I've heard of people who, you know, have been to meetings where clearly other people in the room might not be. You know, might be on the dark side. We're in an extremely dangerous time, and I work closer to dangerous countries to the east than you are. But there are people who put microphones in and video cameras in rooms who do all kinds of things. Which you know, basically, you know, even if you can possibly make a fortune at the end of at the end of every day or week or month or life, you want to be able to look in the mirror and think that you were proud of the way you did it. So there's that sort of fundamental ethical smell test, and you know, you can chuck in a few a few questions about uh, about how they might handle situations where you know clients are hinting that they'd like some kind of incentive to become clients or or whatever and just see how people handle it and you know an experienced person will know that yes that's a serious issue it, it will happen and you know this is this is you know, in some might say I've never been in this situation so I don't know but this is what this is what I would say and this is and you, or you might say well how would you instruct your staff on it because it's one thing to say well I'll take a personal decision it's another thing is how do you train your sales guys right and so you you find things out about people um, I possibly left. Oh, yeah. Also, how much money do they need? How much money do they need, and what are they going to do with it? If someone, and, and also, what is their valuation? You know, and quite often I have these conversations. People say, "Well, uh, uh, you know, what's your valuation?" They say, "Well, it's complicated." And I say, "It's not complicated." <laughs> I want, your pre-money valuation is not complicated. I know it's difficult for you because you know I might be ready to agree to a higher number than you go, you're going to say, but you know you just say, well, how much have you got, or as high as possible? That implies they haven't got a very clear plan as to what they want to do with the money. And, you know, I, you know, is with with younger people, they often haven't realised that it matters as an investor, whether the guy's planning to pay themselves 2,000 euros a month, 3,000, 4,000 or 10,000 a month. And if you don't have your management, your CEO salary regulated, then 
there's potentially a zero profit situation in perpetuity because whenever you make more money, you just give yourself more bonuses as the management board. And this idea of a sort of experienced, uh, experienced set of people all around who can take a decision on that and come up with an appropriate package for the for the founders is important. Other shareholders is important. Like, have they talked to anyone else? Is there anyone else in the room who, you know, in their in their setup, who their partners are? Have they got some kind of commitment? Because you know, you know, sometimes, not quite surprisingly, often you find there's some young entrepreneur, but it turns out they're they're backed by someone like me who wants to get a very high value, a much higher valuation than than they got. And you know, you, it's quite nice to know that there's you know the money you're expected to put in is actually someone else's exit. You know, I'd like to know that in advance rather than rather than not. Thank you. There, I think we've learned a lot there about the process. Do you have your favorite portfolio company that you have invested in? And if so, how did this investment come about? I think I have to be quite... I'm not going to answer that question directly with, 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 except with respect to one business because, you know, each, it's a bit like children. You know, that if you imagine... <laughs> This conversation about yeah, you've got four kids and someone says, what is your favorite child? And then your kids are listening to that. That creates all kinds of problems for me later, which I don't want to have. I think of the companies that I'm involved with that are different, just fundamentally different to all the others, there's uh, Argos Multilingual, which is... You know, it's in the top 50 in the world in professional translation. We acquired a company in the States two or three years ago where uh, the, the, the CEO, Kimon Fontakidis, is a very effective leader. I got involved in that because we have another business together called PMR, which used to be a sort of regional version of the Economist Intelligent Unit, unit or a company like that that did business information in English for foreigners doing business in Poland that PMR was short for Polish Market Review so for foreigners doing business in Poland who didn't speak Polish and I'd seen his name on the on the, on the the publisher on the back of this thing that thudded through my letterbox in those days it was still coming by post back in the 1990s and I went to see him because I had an idea of them producing a study of the, the market for barcode systems in Poland and it turned out he had another business called Argos Argos Translations back then. Now it's Argos Multilingual. Literally, it was just him and one assistant back then, but he's built that, that company. Is, why, why do I like that company? He's attracted the, the best talent in the industry globally to work in the business, so, so people from top companies in the world. It's, it's, it's as if we had people from Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. It's extraordinary he's done such a good job of attracting talent um into the business he runs it as a real business so it's uh you know it's very very profitable and has top clients um we're still not that big in the industry but the potential translation is a very very interesting business the world's largest company was taken private Lionbridge. just a few uh, in fact i'll in the show notes i'll post a link to his blog which is really interesting as well you know, anyone listening who's got a translation company we might want to buy you potentially we're, we're, but in the sort of two to ten million dollar revenue range at the moment um, we might do bigger acquisitions in the future but what, what what's interesting about that business is that it is possible to build a world-class company deal and attract world-class people based in krakow in poland and it was global from the sort of get-go it was never focused on the local market and so there's a mixture of good culture a very strong focus on numbers and results which again this is and in some of the other businesses i'm involved in there's quite a sort of it's quite a controversial type of topic. Now, are we a are we a friendly, nice company, or are we a financially driven company? And it's very nice to have examples in the things I'm involved in where it's they can be both. Because in fact, you know, why can Google treat its staff so well? Because it's fabulously profitable. You know, it's a you know being very successful financially is a precondition to being a really great employer. Because if you're not very successful financially, you won't be able to compete in the in 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 the market for talent as effectively as if. You know, you can be touchy-feely friendly, but, you know, if, if everyone knows, well, you get paid more working for the competition, 
that's not a very good situation to be in, which isn't to say that money is everything, but you have to be competitive. But beyond that, I, I really wouldn't... You know, there are different companies that have been um, successful for different reasons. I, I would come back to the financial side at the, that I think is really important to have financial success as part of what a company is about because a company that doesn't make money is a hobby, not a business, in my from my perspective. And, you know, it's not... I, I used to play tennis many years ago and I played with a French guy and I, I said to him, uh, after he'd thoroughly beaten me, I really just play for fun. And he said, yes, I play for fun, but it's most fun to win. And I feel like, I feel like in, in business, if you're, not, if you're not making money, you're not um, more than your average for the industry. You're not more than averagely successful. Your profitability is a benchmark of your success. And obviously, there are other things that are really important too, like, are you proud of the way you make money? But I use the example, I do quite a lot of entrepreneurship workshops in schools and universities. And I always say that if you're thinking about the sort of company you want to be, imagine you're a, a doctor or a lawyer in a in a private market environment obviously in some countries you have very few private doctors but if you imagine you've got a child and your child starts groaning and clutching its stomach and screaming in the middle of the night you don't say to your you don't yell to your your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend you know find me find me the cheapest doctor you can or find me the best value for money you can you say find me the best doctor you can because it's really important and you know, ditto if you if you're sleeping peacefully in your bread and suddenly you know some horrible secret policeman people smash down the door, slap you in handcuffs, put a hood over your head and lead you out of the door. You don't yell to your you yell to your girlfriend, find me the cheapest lawyer you can, find me the good one. That is, you really want to be in a situation where you're on the list of good ones when it matters. And obviously there are companies like Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, who've in Germany, you know, there are there are companies that have achieved that that sort of they're one of the good ones. The one, the ones who you go to when it really matters. I think that you know, part of being proud of your business is to say, well, you know, you're not necessarily the cheapest, but you're one of the good ones. It's not always true, but even companies like Rio Tinto Zinc, RTZ, which say in their corporate strategy they want to be the lowest cost mining conglomerate in the world, they're not necessarily the cheapest, but they've got the lowest cost, so they can be cheap. When the going gets tough, everyone will go bust before them, but. At the same time, they're probably selling it because they sell commodities. I, I don't actually, I haven't looked at their strategy for decades, but I remember thinking, you know, you want to have really efficient, really low cost, high wages, and because high cost and low wages are not the same, they are not incompatible. People think they are, but you know, Switzerland and Switzerland and Norway and Japan managed to be big manufacturing, and Singapore managed to be big manufacturing countries despite despite having a very high cost because they're so efficient that you're proud of what you do, you have good conditions for your, for your team, your customers show off about doing business with you because you're such a good vendor. People boast about, you know, I got my phone from Apple because it's like the, the high price is a validation of the fact that they're, they're good. Um, if the phones were really crap, no one would buy them. So I don't want to go into business by business analysis of each of the companies because, you know, and none, it's not that... They're all great. It's not that any are terrible. It's just that there are different issues with each of them, and it's quite a personal thing to start analysing your <laughs> your CEOs and company teams on a podcast to an unknown audience. So, you know, that's not the appropriate forum for that. Completely, completely understood. So let us switch gears a little bit and talk a bit more about some personal questions and uh, routines. If you were to give advice to your younger self, let's say 15 years ago, what would that piece of advice be? Mm. That's a good question. I know it's a kind of standard question, but um, obviously borrow as much money as you can and buy stock in Google. (laughs) 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 Uh, um, I don't think Google existed back then. I think... I mean, okay, I haven't talked about my personal situation. I got I got divorced about, about 15 years ago um, in 2003, so slightly less. And I think in the long run, I'd say that was definitely it was my decision, the right decision. I get on pretty well with my ex-wife now. But I think that, I, I think that, that was my equivalent of the midlife crisis because I'm, I'm 50 years old now, so you're talking about I'm 35. And I, I think that 
Gary Vaynerchuk's absolutely right about this, uh, this sort of self-awareness issue, like getting to know yourself. Because like, uh, my, my American business partner, Kimon Fontakidis, who runs Argos, says, you know, you always should be asking yourself th three, three questions of the person you're negotiating with. What do they, what do they say they want? What do, what do they think they want? And what do they really want? And, you know, it's like a sort of, you know, it's not necessarily... A lot of people driven by the need to validate themselves in the eyes of either the I think Milan Kundera says it in the book of laughter and forgetting uh that some people want to be admired by the random stranger on a train some people want to be admired by their family and friends a close community and some people just want the love and admiration of one person you know all of these things may be true at different times in people's life but you know I feel very much now that the the the, the key thing is your self-assessment that you know it's how you feel when there's no one there you know when you know how you feel about how you're spending your time and you know obviously you know what makes one person happy won't be the same as making another person happy but there's an awful lot of people living to try and tick multiple people's boxes but i think if someone really cares about you then they care they should care about how happy you are not whether they can show off about you as a as as their cool friend who's doing x y and z so that's not and you know for some people money may be very important for other people it may be more about you know, the, their status in their family. But if that is the case, fine, but you should be doing it for you, not for them. So the sort of kind of sort of fundamental selfishness, which isn't to say should be bad, but, you you know, if you care about helping the dog home and that's what really matters, stop going to those business networking meetings after work to improve your career and start going to the dog home and take the dogs for walks because that's what you care about, not, you know. So I, I'd say self-awareness and... Um, yeah, I, and I, I recently did a podcast in, in Polish about uh, failures and I talked about uh, my largest scale business failure, which was a mobile telecom infrastructure company where I it was a mistake to get involved and my way of dealing with that was going into denial, which meant that I kept on lending the company money even though the other shareholders couldn't afford to. So I, I increased my loss over time until a friend told me that it really wasn't sustainable but so yeah so i say i'm talking about mistakes uh, one is not knowing yourself well so figuring yourself out second is um if you're going in the wrong direction admit it to yourself that you have to sort of like which is part of self-knowledge but it's not exactly the same thing if things are going wrong be ready to ready to say stop don't put up with unacceptable things. There's a great Australian comedian called Tim Minchin who is so famous now. I mean, he's on Broadway. He did the Matilda play. He's a brilliant pianist and singer. I'm, I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy and uh, I'm involved in trying to get the stand-up stand comedy community going here in Cracker. He's, if you go to YouTube, again, I'll share it in the links. He gives a talk to recent graduates from his alma mater in Australia and he says, don't have dreams. <laughs> don't have a dream. If you have a dream, this is very fashionable to tell young students, to recent graduates, to live your dream. He said, if you have a distant dream, you may spend all your life working for your long-term dream. When you find, make huge sacrifices, and when you finally get there, it'll turn out not to be that good, and it'll be too late. So he said, have short-term, put your effort into short-term goals. I'm not sure he's right, but I think the idea that there should be things you're doing at the moment that make sense to you now... I'm, for example, I haven't done an exit. I've still got a credit on my house. I know a lot of people think their key thing is to pay off their pay off their credit, pay off their mortgage. But I think you know, I could get sick. I could, I could like lose, have an accident. Things, something could go fundamentally wrong in my life, or one of my kids could get sick, which means that I have to change my priorities. Not because I don't want to, but it's just the right thing to do. Um, and I can't do some of the things I want to do. So, you know, I, I I'm doing th I do things which you know. In a way, it might be more rational to put off till later now, because because I I don't know when I don't know when I'm 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 going to stop being able to do those things. I'm extremely bad at prioritizing, and I think that I never was good at prioritizing. But I think that's more I regard that now as a feature rather than a bug. I I multitask the whole time, and but I like to work with people who don't multitask are really focused and I feel a strong sense of hypocrisy here that there's something wrong with saying that it works for me but it shouldn't work for you I'm not sure how well it works for me uh, so so in terms of just coming back to the sort of thing what would I say you know there are some fundamental things about self-knowledge mistakes that you should avoid 
uh, making um, focus on things that make you happy, not in the sort of getting drunk or drugged up in the in the short run, but things that you know you basically feel good about the way you spent your day and your week and your month, not just huge sacrifices. Because you know it may be really horrible doing sixteen sales presentations in sixteen days in sixteen different different cities, but if you believe in the thing you're working on, that's fine. You you, you that pain. It's a bit like working out, you know. It's, it may be a struggle, but if you're if you're on, if you're working on the purpose that you care about, all that incredible effort is completely worth it. Getting back to the personal questions, maybe you could share a bit about what you do in your free time and what takes up most of it. We know that you are involved in many fascinating projects outside of your main work. Maybe you could share a bit about what you're up to. Okay, I'm, I've been very involved in the TED and TEDx. If you don't know what TED.com is, I don't believe you live. Um, the, uh, uh, TED and TEDx, I, I've spoken at, sponsored, um, I've been on the organization team in the last three years, organized TEDx Kashmir, which is the Jewish district of, of Krakow. And as we very much believe in community building, evangelizing for TED and TEDx. Um, I'm particularly proud of some of the talks you can see on. Uh, I'll, in fact, I'll share those in the show notes, uh, t- particular talks at the TEDx Kashmir I've organized, but we also do monthly meetups. I, I go to TEDx's and other cities. I'll be going to New York for the TED Fest, uh, where we'll be watching live stream with TEDx's from all over the world in the last week of April this year. And I, I'm not particularly religious, but I feel the TED and TEDx are very much the sort of optimistic side on a relative thing of things that go right in the modern age. It's uh, you know people you have to do it for free. You're not allowed to charge. Speakers have to do it for free. They're not allowed to charge, considering how much they do. TED works on a minuscule budget. I, mean, I think it's forty million dollars a year, but to build. It's a global, global mega, mega brand and all the TEDx stuff. That's big. In terms of entrepreneurship support, I host a couple of networking meetings, Krakow Enterprise Mondays and Open Coffee Krakow. I have a very strong conviction that a lot of events are extremely low quality or or let's say not low quality but they're not done nearly as well as they could be done and it's not to do with money it's to do with experience and imagination that i I, i'm a great fan of high value added which means a huge gap between the price it it, it, the price charged and or the value created and the cost so the lower so giving people expensive drinks doesn't make it a high quality event it makes an expensive event people i think you know people can get very bored at events even when there's a high budget and bored is the biggest turn off or the worst thing I can imagine uh, you can do to someone is to make them bored is is you know even and it's even worse if you're boring them when you had the money to buy champagne and expensive sandwiches because then it could be you could use the money to make it better so a huge effort, emphasis on audience participation welcoming people and I, I've written a I've got a lot of the things I've learned about that from TED events and TEDx events but some I've figured out for myself and I do and and then recently I've I I think there's a global this may be something that I do that is of actual sort of global significance um is that Europeans are extremely bad at using their alumni networks to good effect and Americans are relatively good at this the exception of business schools business schools have to do good alumni um relations because it's part of their ranking in the business school rankings but for everyone else it's lamentable and so I've in cooperation with the as part of the process that's allowed by Cambridge University I've set up CAM Entrepreneurs this organization for alumni from Cambridge University and I say it's Cambridge and not Cambridge only so I'm potentially able to partner with you I've done three um, I've done one of the first event was in December last year. There'll be one in London next month in February, 23rd of February, and one in New York in 29th of April. And I've, it's so we're launching globally. And the basic idea is that the reason, one of the reasons the situation is so bad in Europe is that almost everyone perceives the only reason to be involved in the alumni network is to listen to people asking you for money that the it's a fundraising exercise and that's the only KPI that really matters and you know whether it's a dinner there's always that speech and an, an organization that kicks off with the begging bowl with the begging bowl by the door isn't really that attractive and in fact you know you can put the alumni networks are very you know people are self-organizing thanks to technology thanks to all the you know, LinkedIn groups Facebook groups and so on um self-organizing anyway and the alumni networks are perfect platforms on which people can find communities of shared interest where you've got that historic thing together which increases the trust level and 
you we we can do way more with this um it's not the only show in town it's not unique but for my public school the winchester college the history with this was that the school i went to winchester college which is one of the most you know high profile elite public schools i.e. private schools in the united kingdom organized a meeting for to do with business and i am one of the other people there thought that it could be better than it was and heard that another school in the country called Eton, which is a sort of historic rival, three alumni from Eton who had all been to Stanford were linked up via the Stanford network because they all worked in Silicon Valley doing different things. And they, they, it suddenly struck them that they, despite having gone to the same school, they were linked by an American organization, despite all being British and having gone to the same high school. So they set up something which is really working called Etonpreneurs. And that's a kind of benchmark, but I'm more ambitious than that. And I think that, you know, in principle, if what I do with Cambridge works, this is something that could be a role model for, for educational organizations and schools all over, well, certainly in Europe, but possibly all over the world, because it doesn't have to cost money to make an extremely high value added event. Apart from that, I'm, I'm, I got involved in stand-up comedy when I was I was running a company two years ago and felt I couldn't do it while I was being a professional CEO, but I've started doing stand-up comedy. I went on a to comedy school in Brighton in England in the summer and with a guy here in with a group of people we've started the Crack Eye stand-up comedy scene because we're in a tourist mega destination here and you know it's a chicken egg problem as with many businesses until there's good supply why would people show up until people show up how do you get good people to come and perform but you know i like challenges so um there's the voitech the soldier bear project which um i i was i run a global community on on the Facebook about a bear that fought in the Second World War. And literally on Wednesday this week, there was an Iranian film crew in a, the apartment of a 91-year-old who remembers looking after this bear during the Second World War. They, they fought together at the Battle of Monte Cassino. And the, the, this guy, Wojciech Naremski, who talked at my TEDx Kashmir conference, you know, when I ever am having a bad time, uh, or things are tough for me, and sometimes they are. I think of him because when he was 16, he was arrested by the the, the Soviet uh, KGB or NKVD. Was in a prison camp where in a cell with 60 people. Then in a prison camp where it's minus 50, and lots of people he he was with died. He's, he he had this incredible trek as a child through the Middle East, Italy, fought at the Battle of Monte Cassino trained as a geologist, became a professor in communist Poland, and he still has a smile on his face. He's physically very small, not very well, but I sort of feel if he can do what he's done with his life, people, privileged people like me, and possibly many of those listening have absolutely no excuse um, to not to do the best they can with their lives. And, yeah, I'm, I'm open to new projects as well. I sort of feel that... And there, there is other stuff I'm doing, but I feel possibly the time is... I blog. I have a blog called uh, richardlucas.com. I do a podcast called projectcashmere.com. And uh, my my sort of tagline, my personal tagline, um, coming back to, how, to sort of close the circle of how I introduce myself, I say to people I like to have fun, make money, and be useful. And if I can do all those three things at once, that that's absolutely perfect, provided I'm delivering my responsibilities to my family and friends but I even if I do one of those three things I'm still pretty happy so I I'm, I'm, I haven't closed the list of things I'm doing <laughs> perfect we'll post notes to everything that you're doing in the show notes so if anyone's interested you can check out uh, check out a set of links over there since we have to respect your time I would like to thank you for the interview and we hope to stay in touch Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber, with audio editing by Juan Wally. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. 
interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals, it's about you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 